Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Has God ever blessed you? You're a believer, and if you've walked with the Lord for any time at all, you would have to answer that yes, would you not? Just count our blessings. I mean, if nothing else, we have spiritual blessings, like a relationship with Him. Maybe we should just stop there. That's the greatest blessing you could possibly imagine. But beyond that, we have things like peace and joy and victory and answered prayer and a relationship with other believers. We can just go on and on and on. There are even material blessings, family and friends and food and shelter. And we could go down that long list of blessings that we have. You've been blessed? Has God blessed you? All right, here's my question for tonight. If God has blessed you, how do you acknowledge that? What do you do in response to that? How do you respond to him? I guess the first thing we would say is that we just thank him. Um, I suppose the simplest illustration of that is saying grace when you eat. But if you think about it, that only covers the food on the table at the moment. What about the stuff that's not on the table? How do you acknowledge the blessing of God? Well, I want to make a suggestion or two tonight about how to do that. And I want to do it by looking at Abram, later called Abraham. So would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to look at a fairly familiar story to some of Abraham being blessed by God and how he responded to it. Now, this is a long chapter, and um, it starts out by giving us a bunch of names of a bunch of kings, um, most of whom I can't pronounce. And if I did and gave them to you, you'd forget them right after I read them. So let me explain to you what's going on here. At the moment, Abram is in Palestine. Palestine is bordered on the west by the Sea of Galilee. Sort of like living in Los Angeles and being to our, uh, I said to the east, I should have said to the west. To the west is the Pacific Ocean. There's a body of water on the west side of Israel. Then, as you move inland, there's a mountain range. Jerusalem, the, cap, the capital city during a lot of the time in the Old Testament, was on the top of one of those mountains. And then it dips down into a valley, and on the other side of that valley, still going further east, is the Sea of Galilee up north that empties, empties into the Jordan River, and the Jordan River flows down uh, to the Dead Sea. And that sort of is the border of ancient Israel. Actually, they had some property on the other side of it, 
called Transjordan. But what I want you to keep in mind for a second is that there's Palestine, and Jerusalem is right in the middle, and to the west is the Mediterranean Sea, and to the east is the Jordan River flowing into the Dead Sea. Got that in your mind? All right. Abram is in Hebron, which isn't too far from Jerusalem. And there are five kings down at the southern part of the Dead Sea. Two of them you will recognize. Three of them you've never heard of. Two of them are, the two of the cities are Sodom and Gomorrah. So the opening verses of this chapter are telling us about those five kings and those five cities, those nations. Now I should point out that when we say nations or kings, we're not talking about a nation like we have today. We're talking about city-states that the city was the state, the king was the king of that city. So these aren't necessarily huge uh, nations, even even like a small nation uh, today. These are more like city-states. The second verse is telling us that these are in, these five kings are in Palestine. One is called Shinar, that's mentioned in verse 1, that's ancient Babylon. Where is Babylon today? What is the modern city, or the modern state? Iraq. And the other city that's mentioned that is significant uh, in this passage is Elam, and that was in uh, ancient Persia, and today that is modern Iran. So, to put all this in your mind, Abram is in... Palestine, there are five cities, kings, city-states, way to the south at the end of the Dead Sea, and way over in what is today Iraq and Iran, there are four kings. The five kings in Palestine are paying tribute to the four kings over in Iraq and Iran. Got all that? All right, that's basically what's going on in this passage. Before I go on, I want to mention a couple of things. This is called the Dead Sea. Why is it called the Dead Sea? As a matter of fact, in this passage, it's called the Salton Sea. The Salt Sea in verse 3. Did you see that? Uh, That's because it's full of salt. It's 33 or sometimes they say 32% salt. That is 10 times of, the, of an ocean, of a salt water, like the Pacific Ocean. That has 3% salt versus fresh water that doesn't have that level of salt. So it's 10 times the amount of salt. You can, if you go, you can float in it, just lay back, and there's so much salt in it, I've done it, you, it just keeps you afloat. You just lay in the water and you on the surface. You don't sink because there's so much salt in it. It's dead because all this water from the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River has fed into it and it doesn't have an outlet. 
which, by the way, is interesting. You don't have an outlet, you die. But that's another problem. That's another sermon. Anyway, what you've got to understand are there are these five cities in the south. Now, I want to talk about those five cities for just a second. In 1918, a very famous archaeologist named Albright wrote that the, the, about this chapter. And he said, quote, there is no foundation for us knowing where these cities are. Uh, matter of fact, um, he wrote that the historical view of this chapter has no foundation. There's no evidence that these cities exist. In 1955, 1918 to 1955, the same man wrote, quote, Genesis 14 can no longer be considered as unhistorical in view of the many confirmations of details which we owe to our present finds. There is evidence that those cities were there. Two of them are Sodom and Gomorrah. Keep that in mind. As a matter of fact, they dug up one of them. It's a 10-acre town. And they calculate that this city existed between 3200 and 2000 B.C. And they dug up the cemetery and found 500,000 burial sites in just that one city. I didn't mean that was the population city, but over time they buried 500,000 people. Then in 1973, a survey of the same area indicated there were four other cities of the same time. So that is our five cities down in the southern part of the Dead Sea. There are five and only five located in the Dead Sea area, one author wrote. All five date to the same period and there's no other evidence of occupation in the area until the Roman period, which is 146 B.C. to 476 A.D. I think this is incredible stuff. The Bible says there were five cities down there, and they dug up five cities that were occupied about this time, and then they were not occupied from about 2,000 roughly to just a hundred or so years before the time of Christ. I think that's incredible. Matter of fact, an hour's drive away, a mosaic map found in the floor of a 6th century A.D. church designates one of these cities as Zor, and that's one of the cities that's mentioned in this passage. Um, without even doing a lot of excavation, it is evident that several of these cities were burned with charcoal that was found even on the top of the ground. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? We hadn't gotten there yet. So I just find this stuff very, very fascinating. Excavation of one of these cities reveals that it was consumed with a, quote, fiery destruction. Two archaeologists excavating two of these five cities believe they found the five cities mentioned in Genesis, including Sodom and Gomorrah. All right. What this passage tells us is that these five cities were paying tribute to
to the four kings over in Babylon and modern Iraq and Iran. They did that for 12 years. And, look at verse 4. For 12 years they did that, and in the 13th year they rebelled. They decided we're not going to be taxed anymore. These four kings had conquered them, and they now decided we're bigger than they are. We are not going to pay this money anymore. However they were paying it in produce or money, whatever, they rebelled. We are not going to pay it. So, all I've done is introduce the major players in the passage. What happens now is because they refuse to pay the tribute, the four kings in the east, Iraq and Iran, invade Palestine. So, picking up the story, in verse 5, we're given the route of the four kings as they invaded Palestine. They did not go directly to the five cities, but these verses explain they picked off their neighbors before they got to the five cities because they didn't want those neighbors helping them when they took on the five cities of the plain. Beginning in verse 8 and going through verse 10, uh, we are basically told that this, they engaged in a battle and those five cities thought they really weren't going to get conquered. They really thought they probably had the advantage. If nothing else, there's five of us and four of them. So we got the advantage. One commentator imagines a general listing the arguments for why they would win. Quote, there are six things in our favor. First is logistics. The enemy's supply lines are extended all the way from here to the Euphrates River. That is, they're far away, Iraq and Iran in our terms, and so their supply line goes all the way back. We got our supplies here. That was one argument they could have used. Moreover, their troops are heavy with plunder, and that makes for unstable and double-minded troops. They had come down and swept into the northern part of Palestine, conquered the cities there, got all the plunder, so they're loading all this stuff around and all these guys are happy for what they've already got. Then there were five of us and four of them, so we have the advantage of numbers. Fourth, we are fighting for four to five positions and their troops will be exposed. In addition, our men are fighting for family, home, and for their dear life. That alone should put backbone into them. And last of all, we know that the terrain and the enemy doesn't. We can make the slime pits fight for us. With luck, we'll get their infantry and cavalry bogged down there, and I can't see how we could possibly lose. Now, that's the imagination of one commentator saying what one general probably said when this battle engaged. We're going to win. No big deal. We're going to win. All right? Now, verse 10 tells us that where this battle was was a full of asphalt pits. 
and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell there and remain, uh, and the remainder fled to the mountains. So uh, they engaged in battle. The four kings won. And as some of these kings were fleeing the battlefield, they got bogged down in all of these tar pits. Uh, so they were defeated. Somebody said this is poetic justice. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. They were vile and filthy on the inside, and now they were filthy on the outside. They were defeated and bogged down in the tar pits. Now look at verse 11. <coughs> the visitors got the spoils of war. That's the point. They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and the provinces and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and they departed. Oh. Lot was where? He was living in Sodom. So when the four kings from the east conquered the five cities in Palestine, one of them was Sodom, and they got Lot and took him captive back to the homeland to make a slave out of him. One archaeologist has said that uh, the kings of the east savagely liquidated the area. Thus the land that God gave Abraham had been invaded and conquered. Furthermore, the navigator narrator reminds us, the reader, that Lot was taken captive and he was Abram's nephew. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Uh, I want you to turn back to chapter uh, 13. Remember in chapter 13, Lot and Abram had this squabble over the flocks and herds, and they split up, and he chose the best, Lot chose the best, remember? Look at what verse 12 says. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So he was near Sodom. You get to chapter 14, and he's in Sodom. So had Lot uh, had any kind of spiritual sense about him, he probably would not have moved to Sodom of all places. You know their reputation, and we're going to get to that later as we study the book of Genesis. Uh, but had he not been living in Sodom, he wouldn't have been captured, and Abraham wouldn't have had to go rescue him, which is what the rest of this chapter is all about. Had Lot stayed next to Abram, he would have been blessed with Abram. How do you know that? Because of chapter 12. Those who bless Abraham are going to get blessed. So he did not stay with Abraham, and he didn't get blessed. He got off into Sodom. Now he finds himself a prisoner of war. Carnal Christians lose the blessing and end up captive. 
So stick close to the Lord. Now, what we've seen so far is simply an invasion of the four kings conquering the five kings of Palestine and in the process capturing Lot and headed home. The next part of this passage, the second part of the passage, tells us about the intervention of Abram. After the invasion, he intervenes to recapture Lot. So, verse 13 says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt there in Mamre, uh, along with some other people that were his allies. Now, this is, he dwelt at the oak tree. I've mentioned that before. What is interesting, he's called the Hebrew. This is the first time the word Hebrew appears in the Bible. Remember what I told you about the word Hebrew? Where did we get the word Hebrew from? What does the word Hebrew mean? Remember? You forgot, right? Remember that long list of names we looked at? And one was named Eber, from which we get the name Hebrew. He is a descendant of Eber. So uh, to call somebody a Hebrew means they're a descendant of Eber. That's all it means. So for the first time, the Bible uses that term in this passage. It also says in that verse that he had allies, and that Hebrew word indicates that they made a covenant with each other. It was probably a defense treaty of some kind. So he takes these allies, and there are three of them, and he's going to go after these four kings from the east. Verse 14, now when Abram heard that his brother had been taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born to his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hoboth, which is north of Damascus, which is way north of the uh, Holy Land. Now you're probably saying, now wait a minute, he, he took... 318 men and went after the army of four kings? And how do you explain that? I mean, um, if the five kings of the south couldn't defeat the four kings of the east, how are three kings going to defeat the four kings? That's a legitimate question. And the answer is, that these were 318 trained men, and uh, they were joined by his allies. There were three other kings that joined in. And on top of that, they divided their forces and attacked from different directions. It also says he went by night. And so here's the situation. They had just conquered all these cities coming down to the five cities. They'd conquered the cities they had gotten all the plunder. They were headed home. The last thing they expected was somebody to come attack them. It's at night, and they're probably all the soldiers are probably drunk. And they are the last thing they're expecting is some kind of a, an attack, and so they're uh, asleep. Uh, somebody has suggested that the situation that Abraham faced, taking 318 men and going into battle against an alliance of four armies, was similar 
to Gideon, who led 300 against 135,000 Midianites. The lesson of both passages is similar. God is able to give a trusting and obedient minority victory over ungodly forces that are overwhelmingly superior in number. Oh yeah, we got to put the Lord in here. So one plus the Lord is always a majority. So, let's think about this for a minute. Apparently, obviously, Abraham and his allies escaped this battle that was going on when they were invaded. And so he hears that they got Lot. So what? Let's just imagine for a moment what Abraham could have fought. Lot shouldn't have moved to Sodom. He got what he deserved. He would be filled with greed and injustice. That's just as it should be. God is judging and punishing him good. There's no way that I could get involved. If the five kings of the plain could not conquer the kings of the east, I surely can. Even if I did, I would make them enemies for life. They would come back later to execute revenge. There's no sense in me getting involved in the conflict. But that's not what he did. Remember Cain? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, is Abraham his nephew's keeper? And the answer to both questions is yes, 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 we are, we are, our brother's keeper. Galatians chapter 6 says, if anyone be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, go restore such a one and do it in the spirit of meekness. Don't get proud about this thing, thinking and you got something special because you're doing it. And lest you also be tempted. So, spiritually minded people should go rescue people that are overtaken in a fault. In the context of the book of Galatians, they were overtaken in the false doctrine that you've got to keep the Mosaic law to be right with God. And Paul straightens them out in the book and says, now the spiritual ones among you, the ones that understand grace, ought to go talk to those who think you've got to live by law and go rescue them. You are your brother's keeper. F.B. Meyer said, faith makes us independent, not, does not make us, uh, I'm sorry, let me start over. Faith makes us independent, but not indifferent. It is not enough for us to hear that it's our brother who is taken captive and will arm instantly and go on pursuit. So, uh, what I thought was interesting, and I misquoted it at first, was faith makes us independent, but it do does not make us indifferent. When we see somebody in trouble, we need to go rescue them. So that's what he did. When carnal believers get in trouble, spiritual believers are not to be indifferent, they're to be involved. So that's what he did. The result is spelled out in verse 16. So he brought back all the goods, and he brought back his brother, Lot, and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Bottom line, Abram rescued Lot and all of his property, and rescued the women besides, 
and the people of Sodom and all of their goods. The Hebrew word translated people, by the way, signifies people bearing arms. The idea is he rescued the army. He rescued Sodom's army. So Abraham chased the invaders all the way out of the land, all the way up to Damascus. That's in Syria, not Palestine. He chased them all the way back up there, which was their route home. Now, so far, we've looked at two things in this passage, an invasion and an intervention. I have one more thing to say. This gets real interesting. I'm going to call it Abram's insight into what's going on. Let's pick up the story. But I want you to particularly look at verse 18. Uh, the king of Sodom, in verse 17, came out and so forth. Uh, but verse 18 is what gets interesting. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. Huh. Where does he come from? Salem, by the way, later becomes the city of Jerusalem. Remember I described the land and said to the west there was the Mediterranean Sea and then there's this mountain and then down in the plains after the mountain, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. Well, we're back now in the middle of the land. We're back where Jerusalem will be established later. It's now called Salem. And there is a man there named Melchizedek, um, who is the priest of the Most High God. Boy, is that ever interesting. Uh, that seems to indicate that he knew who the Most High God was. So this is being presented to us as if he really knows the true God. Clearly, that is the case. Um, he is described as the possessor of heaven and earth. Uh, he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram, the God, uh, Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemy into your hand. So uh, he meets Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the king of Salem says, bless you. So Melchizedek is uh, presented here as a um, king and also a priest. He's a king-priest. Uh, now what is interesting um, is verse 20 says, And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. He meets this guy that comes out of nowhere named Melchizedek, and he gives him 10% of all the spoils he's taken in the war. One commentator said, Abram was returning from the battle with kings, flush with success. 
This is the point where, if it were a film, the orchestra would break into the strain of see the conquering hero come, and Abraham would be expected to throw his weight around and boast of his victory. Abram might even be supposed to use the period to consolidate his conquest of Canaan. The cities of the plain were now his. The hills were his. Everything was his. Few people had ever had such a sublime chance to float toward the cloud of triumph. But no. Abram does not throw his weight around. He does not consolidate his gains. He does not put down Melchizedek. Instead, he returns as he went out, a faithful and humble servant of the Most High God. He even acknowledges the greatness of Melchizedek for presenting him with a tithe of his possessions. That's his response. He gives Melchizedek a tithe. Interesting. Now the king of Sodom, verse 21, said to Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Um, the conquering Abraham, Abram, had the right to the spoils of war. He had the right to take everything. The king of Sodom was conquered. He didn't have the right to anything. And so he says, you know, just give me the people back. Give me my army back. And you can keep all the goods. Now listen to Abram's response to that. Look at verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I should not take anything that is yours, lest you say, I made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men that went with me, and he lists his alliance, let them take their portion. To say he lifted up his hand, of course, means he had taken an oath. So Abram decided that he wanted God's blessing not the benefits of the world. He refused to take the smallest, worthless thing, a thread off of a sandal. Now this is in stark contrast to the Abram that went to Egypt. He went to Egypt, and he took material things from the Pharaoh. Remember all that? He got all kinds of wealth down in Egypt for virtually doing nothing. Now, he does everything, and he takes nothing. So Abraham is growing spiritually. He's learned a lesson or two. One commentator says, Abram decided to stand out clearly as a man who prospered only because of God's blessing. Another said, such a climax shows what is truly at stake in the chapter of international events, the struggle of the kings, the far-ranging army, and the spoils of the city are a small change in the story. The crux is that faith or failure of one man, namely Abram. 
So, that's the story. When foreign kings invaded the land, Abram intervened and won and acknowledged God's blessing. And refusing the world's benefit, gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, there are all kinds of things we could say about this story. Uh, we could spend the whole time just talking about who Melchizedek was. Uh, that gets to be a great theological problem, and theologians for hundreds and thousands of years have come up with all kinds of answers as to just who was Melchizedek. Um, matter of fact, his name means king of righteousness. Uh, He's in stark contrast to the king of Sodom, who could be called the king of unrighteousness. Um, ancient Jews and Martin Luther said that he was Shechem. Uh, Origen said he was an angel. Ambrose and a number of modern commentators think he was the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, I am of the opinion, as I think most are today, that he's just an ordinary man who is a type of Christ, because he's a king and a priest. So the book of Hebrews uses Melchizedek as an illustration of the fact that Jesus is both a king and a priest. But I chose not to go through all of that. I think that there's some other things in this chapter I want us to talk about. The great contrast in this chapter is between Lot and Abram. The story revolves around those two people. So Lot, in chapter 13, takes what he thinks is the best. He's only thinking about himself. And he goes and pitches his tent near Sodom. By the time you get to chapter 14, he's dwelling in Sodom. Consequently, he ends up with his property confiscated and his person captured. He followed the flesh and ended up defeated. That's Lot. On the other hand, the story tells us about Abram, who was unselfish. I mean, you can't read the story. He gives 10% to Melchizedek, he doesn't take any of the plunder, he lets the king of Sodom go, he did all this work, and he basically got nothing for it. He unselfishly let Lot choose the best land in chapter 13, he ends up victorious in chapter 14, and honored by men and blessed by God. Yet, what he did is he acknowledged God's blessing. The Lord, most high. He honored the Lord. He was blessed and he honored the Lord. In stark contrast to Lot, who could only think about himself. Abram, it seems, is only thinking about other people. And the Lord, confident that God would preserve and provide for his own as he had provided uh, for Abram, one commentator said, should encourage believers to decline worldly benefits and wait for the blessing 
of God. So Lot took the path of unrighteousness and ended up defeated. Abram took the road of righteousness and ended up in peace, victory, honor, and blessing. But the great lesson of the episode is that when Abraham was blessed by God, he acknowledged God's blessing. And that's what I want to end with for just a second. How do you respond to God's blessing? I began by asking, has God blessed you? Then how do you respond to How do you acknowledge that? Well, from this story, I want to give you three suggestions. Number one, just give thanks. I suggested at the beginning we do that probably naturally. But there's something else going on here. There's a second thing going on here. And that is, he, he honors the Lord in front of other people. He made no bones about the fact to others. He bore witness to them. So part of the way we respond to God's blessing in our life is we let other people know that it's the Lord who blessed us. Somebody said to me recently, you strike me as having peace. The person talking to me didn't. And I immediately said, yeah, that's true. That's the Lord. And that's the kind of thing Abraham did. That's the kind of thing that we need to do. The third thing he did is he tithed. Now, what an invitation to preach on giving, right? So I can't get out of this chapter without saying a word about tithing. Should we be tithing? Let me tell you, this is the first mention of tithing in the Bible, and Abraham gave 10%. The next occurrence of tithing is by Moses, and he gave, you want to tithe? 23 and a third percent. Tithing in the Mosaic Law is 23 and a third percent. In the New Testament, outside of the Gospels, when you get into the church, tithing is conspicuous by its absence. It's not there. Matter of fact, there's two chapters about giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and God is more interested in your attitude than your money. He loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't care what, so much as what's in your hand as he cares as what's in your heart. He wants you to give with the right attitude. Now, what about tithing? Well, we're not under the Mosaic Law, so we don't have, I, I got good news for you. You don't have to give 23 and a third percent. However, tithing existed before the law. That's this case. So maybe that's not a bad place to start. But the issue is, it's up to you. And here's the bottom, bottom line. According to the New Testament, as well as the Old, what God is interested in is what's in your heart, not just what's in your hand. If you gave the 10% begrudgingly, that does not please the Lord, and he says so. 2 Corinthians. So don't give grudgingly, agata. That's law. You give because of the relationship you have with the Lord. But put all of this in the context of lot and Abram. Are you going to use this money just for you? 
That's what money does to people. They get greedy. They want to hoard it. It's mine. I use it for me. Or do you just gladly give it away so God can give you more? Which is what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians. A Jewish rabbi once took a fellow in his office to the window. And he looked out the window and he said, what do you see? And the guy said, well, blue sky, green grass, see outside. He said, right. Then he took him to another place in the office and he took him for a mirror and he said, now what do you see? And he said, me. He said, right. The difference between the window and the mirror is silver. So when you look at the silver, do you see just you? Or do you see through it to the Lord and other people? Father, you have blessed us so abundantly. And we thank you. And we honor you. We give. Teach us, Father, to not be so selfish to freely, graciously give honor to where honor is due. Give money, but to give praise as well. In Jesus' name, amen.